Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to ignite and launch our most elaborate freedom dreams. If you don't already know Tom Morello, you should get to know him, his music and his message. Tom's a wizard with a guitar, a founding member of the rock group Rage Against the Machine, and part of the supergroup Prophets of Rage. You may also know him as a night watchman. And importantly, Tommy's a political activist who deploys his art and his energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere. From striking nurses and teachers to Black Lives Matter and veterans against war, he extends his hand to every organizer for peace and justice who reaches out to him. So thank you, Tom, for all you do. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling all justice seekers and freedom fighters, and we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom, and how do we get free? Where do we come from, and where do we intend to go? We're gathered together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, and busy in projects of repair and revolution. As a future ancestor, I'm broadcasting today from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, Miami, Ho-Chunk, and a dozen more indigenous nations. We acknowledge them and we thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a story of stolen land and resources a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem is Waiting for the Barbarians by Constantine Cavafy. What are we waiting for, assembled in the forum? The barbarians are due here today. Why isn't anything going on in the Senate? Why are the senators sitting there without legislating? Because the barbarians are coming today. What's the point of senators making laws now? Once the barbarians are here, they'll do the legislating. Why did our emperor get up so early? And why is he sitting enthroned at the city's main gate and state wearing the crown? because the barbarians are coming today and the emperor is waiting to receive their leader. He's even got a scroll to give him, loaded with titles and with imposing names. Why have our two consuls and praetors come out today, wearing their embroidered, their scarlet togas? Why have they put on bracelets with so many amethysts, rings sparkling with magnificent emeralds? Why are they carrying elegant canes beautifully worked in silver and gold? Because the barbarians are coming today and things like that dazzle the barbarians. Why don't our distinguished orators turn up as usual to make their speeches, say what they have to say? Because the barbarians are coming today and they're bored by rhetoric and public speaking. Why this sudden bewilderment, this confusion, how serious people's faces have become? 
Why are the streets and squares emptying so rapidly, everyone going home lost in thought? Because night has fallen and the barbarians haven't come. And some of our men just in from the border say, there are no barbarians any longer. Now what's gonna happen to us without barbarians? Those people were a kind of solution. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. So this is a moment to put words on the page, no editing or second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Look around. Who, according to the powerful and the overprivileged, are the barbarians of today? Who offers a kind of solution to keep us divided, aggrieved, blinded, anesthetized, oppressed, and exploited? Start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Yes, indeed. What's going to happen to us without barbarians? They were, those people, a kind of solution. David Malouf's Remembering Babylon a novel set in a 19th century settler community clinging to the Queensland coast of Australia begins with three white children playing near the border between town and swamp. Suddenly, they see an apparition. Quote, a shape more like a watery heat-struck mirage than a thing of substance. And as it approaches, it becomes clear that the shape is in fact a white man, but with the, quote, mangy, half-starved look of a black. This is Jimmy. Cast ashore 16 years earlier and cared for by Aborigines, a kind of paradox of a white man, familiar but strange, at once white and black. Jimmy's arrival begins the unraveling of the community, for if he's white, the settlers ask, what then are we? It's, quote, the mixture of monstrous strangeness and unwelcome likeness, end quote, that makes him so troubling. Comfortable categories are disrupted. Assumptions ripped open. The horror of not being certain in their narrow categorical beliefs concerning us and other besets the townspeople. The Nobel laureate J.M. Ketsey explores the notion of society constructing some monster called, quote, the other, in a 1980 novel that borrows its title from Cavafy's poem, Waiting for the Barbarians. Ketsey imagines a magistrate who runs the affairs of a small, frontier settlement on the fringes of a great empire, and who exists for decades, undisturbed, untroubled, unthinking, enjoying the petty privileges of his position. One day, a certain Colonel Joel shows up from the Third Bureau. He's an intelligence and interrogation expert, a perfect instrument of empire, and everything begins to change for the sleepwalking magistrate. One day over tea, Colonel Joel explains how he will learn the intentions of the barbarians by questioning the few who hang around near the town. Quote, first I get lies, you see. This is what always happens. First lies, then pressure, then more lies, then more pressure, then the break. The more pressure, then the truth. 
pain is truth in the logic of empire. All else is subject to doubt. The magistrate doesn't particularly like Jal, but he wants to keep current with what's happening in the precincts. One night he decides to see for himself, but immediately regrets his choice. Quote, I ought never to have taken my lantern to see what was going on by the hut, by the granary. On the other hand, there was no way, once I had picked up the lantern, for me to put it down again. The magistrate faces the fact of his situation, an unbearable complicity with a regime based on power and greed, not justice, not decency. He soon realizes that, quote, spectacles of cruelty corrupt the hearts of the innocent, and he wishes he could go back to his innocence living outside the history that empire imposes. Ketsi's tale, the story of all of us, complicit but asleep. We worry that if we pick up the lantern, we won't be able to put it down. The Indian novelist Arundhati Roy says, The trouble is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you've seen it, keeping quiet, saying nothing, becomes as political an act as speaking out. Either way, you're accountable and implicated. There are countless obstacles to our being willing to pick up the lantern, to open our eyes, to stand up for the right or for the good to be activists of some sort for justice, and perhaps naming those obstacles can help us to overcome them. Affluence and position and material wealth are powerfully linked to anesthetized consciousness and the resultant spiritual and moral blindness and poverty. Lady Bountiful, with that irritating beneficent gleam in her eye as she happily delivers holiday food baskets to the ghetto slums of the poor, conveniently overlooks the social and political and economic forces that ensure her opulence and their destitution. Privilege puts you to sleep. A story in the morning newspaper recently, deep inside, buried between the noisy, unruly display ads, opens with this head. Quote, accused of discrimination, clothing chain settles case. The story describes a practice of racial retailing, store employees following black shoppers patterns of withholding shopping bags only from black people, and clerks refraining from inviting black customers to apply for store credit cards. While many of my white students, self-described as good and liberal, were amazed to hear of this injustice, quote, so long after the victories of the civil rights movement. My African-American students took the news with a kind of seething recognition, a familiarity that is at once knowing and outraged. Here we go again, they seem to say, and yes, here we are, face to face with American apartheid, a cruel and debasing separation and a hierarchy of racialized privilege and oppression with all of its attendant self-justification and mystifications. Quote, so long after the victories of the civil rights movement. Yes, indeed, and schools are more segregated than ever. Black workers are stuck in low-income jobs. Black unemployment skyrockets. Racial residential integration is a dream, perpetually deferred. Most black children live in precarious situations. Significant health disparities harden. The serial assassinations of black people by agents of the state continues unabated, and mass incarceration abides. The structures of racial hierarchy are everywhere in evidence, changing forms from time to time. They're strictly enforced and remarkably consistent in substance, dragging the chains of an unresolved history along into each new year. And yet, and yet, 
white people sleeping the deep, deep American sleep, stubbornly insist on beginning each day anew, always as innocent. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, Academics, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both, what's going on? And then importantly, what is to be done? I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today in dialogue with historian and activist Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We are co-conspirators, we are comrades, and we go back a long way. We are friends. So it's good to see you, Roxanne. Good to see you, Bill. Um, how long? How far back do we go? I think I heard you speak in Chicago uh, in the summer of 1969 or later than that, the September. And I think I may have met you then, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because I don't have a clear memory of when we met, but I had read many things by you before we met, and I knew your work, and... I knew you. I knew that you and Bernadine were friends. And one interesting overlap is that your memoir, Outlaw Woman, uh, subtitled "Memoir of the Warriors," I wrote a book called "Fugitive Days," which pretty much follows those same years. You know, um, I think you go from 1960 to 75. I think I go from 65 to 75. But it's pretty much the same idea. That is a memoir of the warriors. Uh, but that was a terrific book and. I really urge people to read it. I, it it's unusual um, for an historian to write a, a memoir, but it's really a, quite a gripping story. I really want to begin with an indigenous people's history of the United States because, you know, Roxanne, I think, I think many people think that you are one of the most incisive, um, clear thinking and clear writing historians working today. And in the indigenous people's history of the United States, really put all of your work on the map in a new way. And it was published by Beacon. Um, and Beacon asked me to write a jacket review for the book, a blurb. And I was delighted to do it. But this absolutely blockbuster movie just came out um, by Raul Peck, who made I Am Not Your Negro. And there are three kind of stars in it. One is the historian Michelle Rolfe Trulot. One is Sven Lindquist, and one is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. What was that like for you? Well, it, it was really interesting experience, you know, very exciting. Um, it started um, three years ago this month, actually. I got a uh, call on my uh, cell phone, and it actually read Raoul Peck. And, and so I dubiously answered it. And I almost hung up because I thought it was a prank. Right. Because he's my favorite filmmaker for a long time. Right. <laughs> And um, he was kind of at the top of his career after I Am Not a Negro, and which was out that year. And But just this uh, humbly telling me how much he loved my book. And wow. um, he wanted to, um, that they had optioned it. I got a an odd email from someone at Beacon Press saying, 
somebody's trying to option your book, we'll be back in touch. Mm. But I didn't know who it was. And um, he said, We're, we want to option the book, but I wanted to contact you and tell you that I want you to be my advisor. You know, Wow, and that is something. Yeah. <laughs> then he told me um, about the uh, other two, you know, what he was doing, the other two books, and asked me if I could meet him in New York. Uh, so we finally met in early June. And uh, so then, you know, the idea was, though, to meld all three of these books into a narrative, not to, you know, just uh, use one and then the other, you know, like most TV series where they mm -hmm. divide it up into chapters. And um, but his style, I knew his style of filmmaking already, so I knew it wouldn't be a talking heads. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, anything like anything you had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. So he had me working on not only my book, but the other books, you know, to to bring them in. So it was it was just a wonderful experience, especially with um, uh, Rolf's book, um, to read it so closely, you know, because yeah. I had read it before. It's just such a brilliant book have you have you read well i have in fact but i'll tell you um uh, raul peck does a, a magnificent job and you do a magnificent job of making these three books come together and really telling the true story of settler colonialism of white supremacy and the absolute horror it has wrecked on the world and I just commend you so much, and I think it's such a great um, opportunity to bring these three books together, and I really admire Peck for thinking of that, because it's a kind of a brilliant idea. Um, three historians, one from Haiti, one from the United States, one from, um, uh, is it Finland or from Scandinavia? Sweden from Scandinavia, right. And all three of you have your eye very clearly on the the vast history of genocide, conquest, um, settler colonialism. And I think it's the first time that in any any text I know or film where the Holocaust has been included mm. under colonial genocide. Right. You know, the German genocide uh, in Africa in the 1880s and 1890s, they developed all of the um, uh, tools, just like all the colonial powers did, for carrying out genocide. And um, also the, um, uh, the influence of United States colonialism, eugenics, this, these, uh, they were borrowed by the Nazis. So I don't I don't think that's ever been done before. You know, the Holocaust is always put in, you know, as a separate place as if it fell from the sky. Exactly. It was an anomaly that had no link to the past or to the future. And that's a terrible, terrible way to read that history. And what he does so brilliantly is shows that when you say all the tools were made, for example, in Africa and in colonial America. Yeah, the tools were made and the tools included an ideology that is firmly fixed in the DNA of, of European powers, firmly fixed. Yeah, white supremacy is, is so deep in the European and um, Euro-American culture that um, 
one wonders, you know, I mean, with these police shootings, I think of it every time this happens, you know, is that it's a, it, it is almost like a DNA, you know, mm-hmm. and white supremacy. It's as if um, policemen, even when sometimes when they're not white, uh, the, the appearance of a, a, a black man alone, usually with his back turn is, is um, an existential threat. And, and the, the way that, Peck and the film, and you come into it several times, but the way that it weaves in popular culture, Peck's own autobiography, his own memoir, his own films of his own childhood, his own experiences, um, and then kind of the contemporary. So you see the slaughter of indigenous people, and then boom, there's a quick cut, and you see uh, a group of people being beaten uh, at a demonstration, or a black man being killed, um, unarmed black man being killed by a cop, and the connections are so real and so visceral. You know, I, I want to go back to an indigenous people's history of the United States for a minute, because it is such a monumental book, and I'd like you to talk for a minute about the origin of the book. What you'd written a lot um, by the time you published this book, you knew a lot, but it's uh, you undertook something new. And I wonder what the motivation was, and where it came from, and and uh, the impact that it's had. Well, I really have to give credit to my now long-term editor. Um, Gayatri at uh, Beacon Press, who called me and told me uh, I ha- I didn't know her. I'd never met her. I didn't know anyone at Beacon. I admired uh, and quite a few of their books. And of course, they published Silencing the Past uh, mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. She um, She wanted to, you know, really reinterpret U.S. history from different perspectives. So mm-hmm. uh, she knew she wanted a, what she was calling a Native American history. Um, and um, I think she got my name from Howard Zinn, you know, mm-hmm. who taught at uh, Boston University for many years, his whole career. And uh, Beacon is in Boston. And, um, you know, when she laid it out, I thought, you know, that, that seems like the book I've been writing um, ever since my uh, dissertation, which was right. the history of land tenure in New Mexico about U.S. colonialism, right. Spanish, and then U.S. colonialism in New Mexico. And I, uh, although I don't do, you know, really, I didn't do U.S. history in the past. That wasn't really my field. So I, you know, I... Um, I wasn't thinking when I told her, I ain't sure I think I can do that. I've been, you know, writing that book, I think, or had it in mind. I actually, when I was doing this Central American uh, work, you know, uh, fighting the Contras, (laughs) I wrote a memoir about that, too. Um, I... um, In 1986, I sat down one summer when, you know, in the time that I wasn't down there. And I, just for about a month, I just started writing. And I called it, I was calling it Onward Christian Soldiers, the History of U.S. Militarism. Mm. 
And I wrote 100 pages. And then I, um, it became, you know, I, I had a manuscript and people kept making copies of it and, and it kind of circulated and a Cuban friend, you know, I met, I, I knew and uh, it was with the uh, mission in, in Geneva. He, he loved it. You know, I mean, he, he got it, he translated it into Spanish. So it, you know, it was just a, it, what it was, I you know, was the colonization of the United States, the the wars, you know, the wars against Native people that then became the basis of the U.S. military and world imperialism. And so I did feel like I had a handle on it. And actually, that text became a kind of foundation oh, for writing, writing the book. Mm. Although, you know, once I started reading more U.S. history, <laughs> which uh, I had, I realized that a lot of good, you know, there's some pretty good historians working now. And, you know, um, but they're kind of in tubes, you know, there's great um, African-American history, the Native American, because the Native American experience was foundational to everything else. Right. And, um so I, uh, so I did have to do. Um, I had to buy several new bookcases to contain all the books that I kept accumulating. Yeah, and I thought it would be easy, um, but actually, I I developed a phobia to this book. It was so difficult. Yeah, you're wrestling with so much. I mean, yeah, and it was supposed to be readable, you know, I mean, readable by the educated reader, but not not uh, academic. And um, once I'm in my historian mode, I have this, you know, this historian on my shoulder saying, you can't do that. You can't, <laughs> you can't just That's... say that you have to you have to have a footnote you know right, to right. what you're saying and 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 then give the other side of it you know and and i have to knock this guy off my shoulder you well, know exactly and you did a good job of that because actually just as long as you went there this is an elegantly written book but they are there are chapter titles like this land and then follow the corn culture of conquest bloody footprints. I mean, and you really get drawn into a sweeping story of what you end up calling a crime scene. <laughs> you call the United States a crime scene at one point, which I think is appropriate. But say a word about that. We live in the crime scene. Yeah, I took that from this Chickasaw scholar, Jody Bird, the Transit of Empires. Just the book came out, you know, right when I was starting this book. And it, it's just so brilliant. But she had this uh, concept of the um, uh, the United States as a crime scene and uh, that yellow tape. We should, right. And I, I got this idea of starting a movement where we would get people all over, you know, the Canadian border and the two coasts and the Mexican border putting yellow tape around the United States. You wow. Know, that is a beautiful idea. Yeah, we've got to do it. We have to do it. I'm seeing tape, and I actually wanted that for a cover. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, my my uh, editor didn't go for that. <laughs> he 
<laughs> well, it works the way it is, but I'll tell you one of the other things that you do, and this is, we were talking about Raul Peck's remarkable film, but you do this as well, is that you, you uh, challenge us to take off our blinders and to look for real at the people we were holding up as glorious, um, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt, he's an easy target, or Abraham Lincoln, but all of them have blood all over their hands. And um, it's just kind of shocking to realize that this is not, it's like the situation we're facing today where people like to talk about bad apples, but the tree is very good. And you and I know that the criminal justice system is a rotten system with a few good people in it, and, and that's understandable. But that's the same with the, the, with reading this book. You get this sense that the 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 full story is a, is a crime scene. The full story is worse than a tragedy. And sure, there are some good people living good lives, but but let's not get confused. Um, let's understand the depth of it and and without understanding it, we can't move forward i um i'm always thinking about well what will this contribute you know to organizing to mm. people's consciousness and i felt i had to you know say that there is something that can be done mm-hmm. and that is to acknowledge this <laughs> right reality you know, acknowledge it. And I think that's very difficult, even for people on the left, you know, that um, are so imbued with a Eurocentric um, socialism, Marxism, you know, where the working class is at the base of of everything. But when you a working class in a separate colonial state, um, I mean, even, you know, even Marx and Engels dealt with this with the British working class and, and the Irish, the colon, Irish colonization. I don't think they dealt with enough with the rest of the colonization of the world, India and so forth. But but I I felt that, you know, that there's this um, that that in all the social movements uh, since the United States. States is founded, and I know that's Howard Zinn's theme and his people's history is to inspire these social movements. But then we have to ask, well, what about where has this gotten us? If we don't know the exact dimensions of the enemy, you know, the United States, colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, if we don't know that in detail, how can we construct any kind of strategy to change it, you know, to uproot it? And I think you're absolutely right. And I think this book is such a great companion to struggle precisely because it's in the tradition of truth-telling. It's in the tradition of you can't have either reconciliation or revolution if you don't have the truth. I learned that history, not in graduate school or from books, but in my work with the American Indian Movement and the International Indian Treaty Council, which started in 1974. I was recruited into working on the wounded knee cases after mm-hmm. wounded knee and uh, fortunately had Vine Deloria for a mentor doing that. And 
uh, then I was at, you know, camp meetings of Lakotas, uh, AIM Lakotas, um, in that process, uh, many, many, you know, many, many years of, um, of telling, you know, telling stories of, of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I got this, you know, the, the knowledge that's in that book. It came, it came from there. And, and, um, and Native, you know, as I was, I couldn't have written this book either without the Native scholars that had developed between Mm -hmm. um, 1970 and, and when I was writing it, you know, in 2010, 2011, 12, I think most activists are urban that all that federal land, and then you know, the last chapter of the book, I make I make some uh, uh, some uh, suggestions, in fact, of what people can do, and one is to demand that all of the federal lands, including the national parks, uh, you know, Yosemite and and Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, and all of them. Um, the forest areas, everything under federal jurisdiction, that is all Indian land that was taken without treaties. Mm-hmm. They can't privatize it because they don't have title to it. You know, as much as right-wingers want to privatize the public lands, there's no legal way to do it because it belongs to the Native people unless they negotiate for Native people, you know, the different Native nations that. Uh, whose land it is to sign it over um so it should be returned you know so that they can flourish and develop real nations you know nation building i have to explain what settler colonialism is by talking about israel right instead of instead of right here right exactly i have to explain what it is first and then say and Israel got that from the United States. South right. Africa got apartheid from the United States. And the funny thing is, Israel's still getting it from the United States. But, you know, it, what's so interesting in your book is it's so clear that the status of American Indians today um, really haunts the United States. And while we don't look at it and acknowledge it, your book does. But until we do as a movement, as a, as a people... It continues to haunt uh, U.S. U.S. reality right now. Yeah, it's like ghosts, you know, ghosts that no one wants to see. Exactly. But one of the things that one of the things that I think is really wonderful about your ongoing work, you have since since um, an Indigenous Peoples uh, history, you published a book that I absolutely love. Um, uh, about the Second Amendment, and it's called Loaded. And then you've published a book um, called We Are Not a Nation of Immigrants, or you've you've got that in in process, I believe. Um, but but you're drawing on this same history. So I'm just open to a page of an Indigenous people's history, and you say, although not mentioned, Native people are implied in the Second Amendment. Say a word about that. Yeah. 
you know, I was asked, again, I was asked to write that book, um, uh, City Lights, and um, because I have a paragraph in an Indigenous People's History of the United States where I, I, uh, I'm talking about the, well, the chapter is the cult of the Constitution. That's and right. And I, I mention, you know, that the Second Amendment is a part of that cult, and it actually means the the uh, citizens' militias that were to kill Indians and take their land <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of a mandate for settler, uh, settler violence and arming themselves. Um, and then I uh, extend that to, you know, white nationalists today. Uh, when the book came out three years ago, people were still in denial people on the left, people in general, in denial that there was a, even though Charlottesville had happened by then, that there was a serious, you know, white nationalist, uh, armed white nationalist problem (laughs) in the United States. And coming from rural Oklahoma, you know, I mean, it never went away. You know, I mean, it's always been there. It's just people, they didn't come to the you know, didn't have a, um, a guru in power like uh, they, Reagan did a pretty good job of it, but, uh, you know, with dog whistles. But Trump, of course, just had a flashing green light for um, for white nationalism. And they came out of out from under the rocks and. And people began seeing them. But I think there's still a disconnect in understanding that it's not new. Immigrants were um, limited to Western Europeans since 1924 and, you know, Chinese exclusion. And it was a white republic. Everyone in power, in any position of power, from president to corporate leaders to everyone, was white and mostly Anglo white. Right. And, and that, that just burst everything. And they knew it immediately. This is, you know, this is the beginning of the end of us mm. and our power. They could see the writing on the wall. So they formed the John Birch Society, the white nationalist organization, four years after that decision with with the motto, impeach Earl Warren. Right. The the, the head of the Supreme Court, right? <laughs> exactly. Wow. I mean, they tell us what you know what was making them paranoid and determined to take back their country, which wasn't even you know, taken until we came about in the 60s and started taking it away from them. And so then, you know, they, um, I think the, you know, the powers that be, I I think they were somewhat divided. uh, And the, you know, the capitalist titans between the kind of liberal Rockefellers and then the, you know, the more, um, uh, shady uh, corporate leaders and political leaders. The National Rifle Association was taken over by the Second Amendment Foundation, um, a 
openly white nationalist organization based up in Eastern Washington, which is has been designated, had been designated already at that time as the future homeland of the white people when, you know, the mongrels took over the United States. And and so it just, and then with the, the Reagan administration, just giving the green light to white nationalism in every way he uh, possibly could, um, they flourished, you know, mainly in rural areas, uh, taking advantage of the um, the uh, uh, corporatization of uh, super corporatization of agriculture. It was already commercial, but there were it was dominated by family farms. Mm. Now that's not subsistent farming. Those are rich farmers. And ranchers, you know, who had big spreads and and monocrop production, but they were being subsumed by really large agribusiness, you know, and 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 the dairy business too, and losing, you know, killing themselves, committing suicide, and uh, you probably remember the uh, them driving their combines into Washington D.C. I do, yeah, yeah. And a lot of us, you know, I know the World Peace Council I was working with at the time, they they really gave, or the National Peace Council really gave a lot of support um, uh, to these. You know, it was a very legitimate struggle. And, um, uh, but they, we, we didn't realize how they were being infiltrated, you know, by these white nationalists organizing them. And so... That was one, you know, and then the deindustrialization in the industrial areas of, you know, Michigan and, and Illinois and, you know, where, where you are, um, this too, they were, you know, they were um, uh, blaming, you know, black workers for taking their jobs and immigrants for taking their jobs. And so these, you know, this, this idea of white genocide um, really, uh, really took hold and you know the Ku Klux Klan was revived and went after young people but what I think is interesting I mean this history is so important and once you have firmly in place um the uh, the notion that the United States deep deep in its not it's just its history but in its DNA and its very essence has settler colonialism and white supremacy baked into it then you look at something, and this is what really knocks me out about your book, Loaded, is it, that the liberal conservative argument breaks down. The liberals say, oh, well, the conservatives have, have uh, misinterpreted the Second Amendment. It didn't mean everybody gets to own a bazooka. But that's not it. What, the, what they're missing, what the liberals are missing, is the Second Amendment was an Indian killing amendment. I mean, at its heart, it was white supremacist. At its heart, it was settler colonialism. Yeah, it's very frustrating that um, that they just refuse to accept um, that you know that interpretation of um, of the United States because mm-hmm. they want to make it a um, you know, uh, this glorious 
this glorious founding of the United States uh, with a few warts, you know, but still the greatest experiment in human history. Right. Um, and that just goes in the face of it, you know, right. that that the Constitution itself is filled with white supremacy. I mean, like only white males can be citizens. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's so yeah, that denial, but all they they go farther and and really create a narrative that is just simply factually incorrect. Um, and disarming. I mean, it's incorrect, but it also leaves us weakened. Well, they, you know, they say, and you, you know, they say this over and over again that the militia, you know, that the in the Second Amendment that a well um, regulated means it's the government, but they don't understand settler colonialism. Right. They had, they had to. Put, there's no way that these elite Virginia slave owners, plus Alexander Hamilton, could possibly develop the power and the army to take the continent, which was their stated goal in order to get to China, the wealth of China. That was their stated goal in forming a state. They knew they had to empower the settlers and get more of them in order to take Indian land. And the land, free land, was the, you know, was the prize that they offered them. So they, this was the, this, why they cannot conceive of settlers being well self-regulated, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Isn't that it doesn't have to be. Here's this individualistic country where we're supposed to all be. And we are. We're terribly well self-organized, I think. Otherwise, we would this would real be real chaos in the United States if we relied on the government to organize us. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the great prides. And yet they say they, you know, they can't even conceive of that. So they say it's meant it's the National Guard, the state militias. That That's became the National right. Guard. Right. But they are clearly provided for in the Constitution. Article right. 8 is the founding of the official state militias. They called them state militias in the 1890s. They changed it to National Guard. Right. But that, but, but that, that notion that they're deputizing the population. And what, are they, and what are they deputizing them for? To steal land and kill people. Yeah, and they, you know, by well-regulated, they met not a bunch of um, highwaymen, you know, robbing people, you know, and, you know, criminals, gangs, uh, that they're well-regulated. And right. it's it's like municipalities, you know, formed their police forces and, you know, all, all of these things. So it's such a spacious argument. Say a word about the, the title, um, we are not a nation of immigrants. Uh, yeah, the book is coming out in August, and another book with Beacon, and it is called uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants, okay. mm -hmm. uh, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. Ooh, so, I love it. But I wanted to show how, how 
immigrants become settlers because up until uh, up until the Irish refugee, the two million Irish refugees in the 1840s, the it was mainly an Anglo and Ger- and German, a very large German uh, population, but predominantly Anglo. That's the book is really about how settlers become, you know, Noah like Native wrote a book, How the Irish Became White. Yes. But it really is how they became settlers. Exactly. Because they were already white, you know, one thing. Um, Well, of course, there's there's that famous idea that when you're over in Europe 150 years ago, you're German or English or Italian, you come to America and you become white because, right? Because there's something to be against. And it's just like now when I hear people say Asian, no Korean in Korea calls themselves Asian, right? Well, we, I, I, I think we're going to have to come to an end. We've gone over an hour and I promised you 40 minutes. Um, but I, I can't thank you enough. I could talk to you for a long, long time, and we have and we will. Um, but it's just been delightful to have you here. And the book, An Indigenous People's History, the coming book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, and the Raoul Peck documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes. These are essential readings if you want to understand and locate yourself in history and in this country and figure out what is to be done. Roxanne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bill. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Aleem, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is written by Bill Ayers. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, oyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a beacon for transformative justice with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.